0: The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf and this is the Slate Culture Gabfest: Fest Harm to Ongoing Matters edition. It's Wednesday, April 24th, 2019. On today's show, Queen Bay and Beychella, I have no idea whether I'm pronouncing any of those things right. We talk about the Netflix documentary on Beyoncé's now legendary Coachella set from last year. Uh, that's called Homecoming. And then Jordan Peele is the sketch comedian turned acclaimed film director. He's now the host Svengali of a revived Twilight Zone TV series. And finally, The Muller Report as text. Text. We're culture critics, after all. We should be able to read it as a quasi-novel, work of fiction, great nonfiction, whatever. We will discuss with Karen Schwartz, who's participated in making it into an audiobook. Joining me today is Aisha Harris, who is late of Slate, you may remember. She's now a staff writer at The New York Times. Aisha, welcome back.
1: Hello, Steve. It's great to be back.
0: It is superb to have you. And of course, Dana Stevens is the film critic of Slate.com. Hey, Dana.
2: Hey, Steve. How you doing?
0: Uh, Good. and what was done in her name.
3: The, the great lesson of this, uh, for me, is that people will come to their own conclusions based on what their prejudices are.
0: Subscribe to The Queen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening right now.
1: Steve, you actually, the pronunciation is not Bay, uh, It is bee. It's the you, beehive. The beehive, queen bee. <laughs> but um, it's baechella. Is no, it no, it's it's be as as DJ Khaled <laughs> said, pronounced during the Coachella performance. It's Beachella. It is now known as Beachella. And you also say you pronounce it Beyonce, not Beyonce. Oh
0: Jesus, Queen B does make a certain kind of sense. I mean, that's a powerful mnemonic for me to use going forward uh, to recall that it's Beyonce is now legendary set at the Coachella music festival from uh, festival from about a year ago is now a Netflix documentary part concert film part confessional it tells among other things the story of losing weight after a grueling pregnancy um, to get back into concert shape but it's way 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 more than that as we'll discuss it's a compendium of black culture musical and otherwise especially where that culture touches on the collective political identity of black people in America the whole aesthetic is built around HBCU, Historically Black College or University, The Homecoming, right? So there's like a marching band and risers. We'll get into that as well. Anyway, hence the title of the the Netflix documentary about the performance and the run-up to it. Homecoming, let's listen to a clip. There was a four-month period of rehearsals with Derek and the band before we started the four months of dance rehearsals. The music and those vocal rehearsals, that's the heartbeat of the show. I wanted all of these different characters and I wanted it to feel the way I felt when I went to Battle of the Bands because I grew up seeing those shows and that being the highlight of my year.
1: Five, six, seven, back, mm-hmm. right, left, right, back.
0: So I studied my history, I studied my past, and I put every mistake, all of my triumphs, my 22-year career into my two-hour homecoming performance. All right, Aisha, I'm going to quote from your piece in the Times, uh, which is great, by the way. This was a career-defining performance by Beyoncé, who became the first black woman to headline the festival since its debut in 1999. For nearly two hours, she and an astounding cast of dancers, singers, musicians, wove together a beloved, unparalleled collection of hits and deep cuts, interpolated with music from the Dirty South and civil rights activists like Nina Simone. I... I'm just going to pick a way in because this thing is gigantic in its way. But Nina Simone's not a bad one because she sort of picks Nina Simone to a voice you really hear uh, a number of times very meaningfully over the course of this documentary. Maybe talk a little bit about that and then move wherever you'd like.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that is really interesting about this documentary is that there isn't really much new that we haven't already seen. If you saw the Coachella performance, and I've seen it and have seen it many times over since then, um, it was, you know, exactly what you saw, and it's great to have this document finally, like, in a legal form, where, like, <laughs> um, you can watch it on Netflix instead of having to, like, watch clips of it and bits and pieces or, like, you know, the the downloaded uh, form. Um, but then there are these vignettes in between the performances, um, Um, And I will say the performances are actually um, spliced. It's two different versions. It's the first week and the second version seamlessly interwoven. And you can tell usually by the different costumes that she wore, um, which performance it is. Um, But the vignettes are her way of kind of laying out a little bit more explicitly what the point of the performance was that we didn't get when watching the performance. Or, you know, if you... Um, We're not familiar with all of the references. I think that it's very useful. Nina Simone actually, the quote she uses uh, involves Nina Simone sort of talking about how she wanted Black people to love themselves and to um, make them realize that, like, Blackness is great. It can be beautiful. And that seems to be Beyonce's theme of the entire um, Homecoming special is I wanted to give this is for the culture as we say it is for black people to um celebrate um to uh, appreciate everything that they have created everything that ca- they can create at one point Beyonce in voiceover says you know like I like there's been so much pain and and so much suffering but then out of all of that comes like so much damn swag and it's just Beyonce marveling at what not only she can do and what she has worked very hard to do, but what the hundreds of dancers and, and um and singers and the bands that 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 she brought together, it's them all creating this beautiful masterpiece that celebrates black culture. And that is so that is what Beyonce is doing. She's both um, anointing herself yet again as the queen of pop culture, of, of music, uh, popular music in general, and also anointing black culture as the sort of the reigning American culture that we have.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk about that in in two of its aspects as she seems to, you know, get into them. One of which is kind of, you know, uh, you know, culture. She she talks about Curtis Mayfield, Coltrane, and Nina Simone. So the just unparalleled greats of Black music, as Black music became a form of of uh, of protest. And as weird as it might be to talk about a part of Black culture in in America as being top down, maybe in two thousand nineteen there is a way in which that's a little bit top down. And then there's the bottom up aesthetic of the whole thing, which is the homecoming theme, which is kind of this remarkable marching band is virtually omnipresent all the way through and the clip that we heard really speaks to this as a almost like you know when you read 19th century people talk about what it was like to go see a Wagner opera right like it's this this like total sensory experience of which music is really only one part and it remakes your like expectation of what can happen on a stage maybe talk about those two elements and how they interact with one another
1: yeah I mean, the homecoming aspect she um another part the throughout the 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 vignettes that we see, we don't actually usually see it's very rare to see beyonce speaking um at the same time as we see her if that makes sense. So a lot of it is voiceover kind of in this distorted. It sounded, at first I didn't realize it was her talking for some reason because her voice sounded kind of different. It sounded like she was like talking to someone on the phone.
2: Yeah, there's filters everywhere. <laughs> there's sound filters. There's visual filters. I think some of that is because some of the footage might come from home footage, you know, like that people shot from the wings or the, the right. audience or the side of the stage. Right. But there's a lot of different textures going on with the sound and the look of, of this movie.
1: Yeah, and, it, and it's all perfectly curated through Beyonce's filter. Um, and we can get into that a little bit more about like what she chooses to let us see and what we don't see and what we hear about the process. But she does talk about um, how, you know, she her father went to an an HBCU Fisk University um, and that like she always wanted to go to an HBCU. But, you know, being in Destiny's Child was her schooling, which is like it's like a great humble brag. (laughs) Um, But uh, she a lot of the rehearsals that she did as a young performer and with Destiny Child, uh, she says, like we're on um, we're on the the uh, fields of HBCUs and she would go to Homecoming. And so Homecoming, I did not go to an HBCU. Sometimes I kind of wish I did um, (laughs) just based on my friends who have gone to them and what that communal aspect is. But there is Homecoming is the Big thing. Um, I think there's a dancer in the documentary. who says uh, that the homecoming is basically the Super Bowl for the HBCUs. It's a big deal. It's an entire weekend. There, uh, the music, the the showing out, the the outfits. You 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 get prepared. It is a big fancy uh, affair. Um, and so her bringing that culture that is very distinct to HBCUs. It is very different from a homecoming at. Yale or I don't know Harvard or whatever. It's a it's culturally very different, and her bringing all those aspects of the show into the show, um, the 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 brass band, the different songs that are often played at marching bands at HBCUs. Um, I think that that is her, like I for her. I think Homecoming is is not just about um, you know black like. Blackness, But also her sort of um, centering herself in the middle of black culture, as I've already said. Um, you know, I don't personally, I think that she didn't really come into this very explicit self-awareness of her blackness until I would say, like, Beyonce, the album, the 2013 surprise album. And going forward, I think that's when we started to see a different side of Beyonce. Um I'm not saying she was never she's always been black like <laughs> she's always made music um, that has been able to appeal to both black and white audiences audiences but I think now she's kind of shifted and I she has commented about how Solange her sister her younger sister has sort of moved her in that direction of being even more explicit and I think also she's reached a point in her career when she can safely make a song like Formation that directly addresses Black Lives Matter um, or indirectly uh addresses it as well um, in a way that she couldn't have done a decade ago um so there's a lot there's so much going on but I think that that's like one of the biggest things uh that she has that homecoming brings out is beyonce is like undoubtedly embracing her blackness in a way that she hadn't um before. Like I went back and I rewatched her HBO doc from a few years ago, Life is but a dream, which like this documentary, it it purported to be showing a side of Beyoncé we haven't seen and it sort of did, but it like everything was so vague about what she talked about for the most part that like you walk away thinking oh yeah like it's cool that we get to see a little bit of like her baby bump but then it's like but what did we really learn about Beyonce and (laughs) and so and so with this it was like we got to see her you know kind of lightly scolding her crew cast and crew of like we're not there yet she she says like this is janky I know we'll get there but like we're not there yet but then I wanted to hear more about like okay so why did she put this song with this song? Like, why did she... Like, w- obviously, we know she loves, has always admired and put herself in conversation with Michael Jackson. So there's like a hint of the Jackson uh, song. Uh, Can you feel it in there? There's also a little bit of Dancing Machine. And The Wiz is in there. The Wiz is in there. Um, you have uh, you have juvenile back that ass up. Like there's all these different things. And I just wanted to know, like, OK, so what was your thought process about like this moment to this moment and this moment to this moment? But yeah, like all like the, all these just questions, that really small questions about like what her process is of like actual like creative process and that's something we still haven't like, you know, her people, people around her from lemonade and who have directed her and and worked with her have talked about it, but like I also everything they say for the most part also seems like it's definitely been already like vetted by her first and so there's only so much that we will know about beyonce which is is a good good and a kind of frustrating thing as a fan
2: Yeah, I mean, I'm going to be honest. That's the thing that frustrated me the most about this documentary and Life is But a Dream, which I think we talked about on this show. The documentary that was on HBO, right? Mm -hmm. That was about after she had her first child. Yeah. Um, As a concert film, this is incredible, right? I mean, just as a record of this concert, which, as you say, has mostly come down to us in dribs and drabs or illegal torrents since then, it, it really gives a sense of the scale and why that was such a... I mean, as, as lots of critics said at the time, kind of a history making concert. Right. Not just because she was the first black woman to headline at Coachella and only the third woman ever to headline there, which I hadn't realized. Yeah. Um, but because of the scale of the performance, because of, you know, it was two hours long, which I assume for a festival set is ex- extraordinarily extensive. Right. And she was on stage for almost the entire time. <laughs> right. And, and like dancing and singing really hard. And there was something like, I think, at the most 200 people on stage, they said, which is pretty extraordinary, which was something that had not really come across from all the bits that went viral that tended to be of either just her or her and a few dancers in the foreground. You know, the fact that she was surrounded by these risers full of drum lines and, you know, orchestras moving in choreography and all of that scale just really comes across beautifully. So the concert stuff is great. And then the behind the scenes stuff is so, to me, was Too skimpy, for one thing. I mean, this is two hours long already, but I could have done with two and a half hours if it really had some glimpses into the rehearsal process. I'm not even talking about her own, what you just referred to, her famous kind of ability to obfuscate her own self and to kind of polish her own image. But even just talking more to the background dancers. There's one background dancer who's briefly interviewed about how she got there and who she is. But then the camera doesn't really go to the trouble of picking her out in the risers and showing you her in performance. I sort of would have loved some little character sketches of some of the people in the background. Who's the choreographer? Who's the music director? You know, throw a name or two up there. It just it was all, as you say, so so vague and so all about sort of sensation and feeling rather than us learning anything about the process and as much as i love a good concert doc i love a behind the scenes featurette even more and i feel like on that scale this was a little bit disappointing
0: in in so devoting itself to the i mean both the show and the documentary are so devoted to the ap- total apotheosis of beyonce which she may or may not deserve she probably does um and and the thesis of like authorial signature being felt in every stitch of clothing every note of music you know you know that a lot of people are going completely Ignored or effaced, to you know, who contributed to it. Um, and the one thing, Aisha, I'd love to ask you about quickly before we wrap is that you used a phrase that was going through my head uh, while I watched the documentary, which was "bow down." There's, there's something so total about the Wagnerian excess um, that it's an aesthetic designed to like almost completely overwhelm us to the point where we do cry, Uncle. Right. Like it's it's a little non-participatory in a in a way you and I and I I, I get it that she's mag, like magnificent beyond magnificent. She's probably the greatest live performer of of her generation and maybe by quite a quite a lot. But it's that feeling of like I must submit to Beyonce that makes me uh, back off a little bit from feeling very much of anything when I watch it. What do you, What do you think?
1: It's interesting you say that because I gave like, despite my reservations or my my kind of uh, meh reaction to the behind the scenes stuff, I gave this review a pretty glowing review, I think. And then for whatever reason, Metacritic decided to make it a seventy. Uh, like Metacritic is one of like like Rotten Tomatoes, but not Rotten Tomatoes, where they actually rate things on a number scale. And so like 70 is like basically a C. I didn't give them that number. And the New York Times does not rate or rank uh, its its reviews. But once that went up, I had Beehive members coming into my mentions on Twitter being like, how could you give this a 70? This is the greatest thing ever. You're crazy. As a black woman, how could you? I'm like, first of all, read my review. <laughs> and second of all, I, I love Beyonce. But... We and and I believe that anyone who says like she doesn't like she doesn't deserve the credit that she's gotten that she just run, like runs around the stage and sings and shakes her butt whatever like I think those the like that person has no val- validity like they are not a real person but I think that we should be able to critique someone like Beyonce and want more from her in terms of like what she gives us about the process. I don't I I could have done without the scene where she's like finally fitting into her outfit and showing Jay-Z like look I got my I, I'm in my outfit again. Like I could have done without that scene. Like I get it. Beyonce works really hard on her body. Obviously, we know that. I would have liked to see more of the process as we've already talked about. And so I can understand your frustration <laughs> or like your your hesitation to fully embrace her. I will say just succumb and give in see? <laughs> because she really is I, I, I don't think it's hy- hyperbole at all to say that she is the, the performer of our generation and I'd say she's as much as I love MJ he obviously he had lots of issues and we're not even going to talk about that. We've already discussed this on other podcasts. Um, but I do think in terms of longevity and what she's been able to do, I would argue that she's either on par with him or might've even surpassed him at this point in the fact that like she's 38, 30, almost 38 um, and she is still on top of it. And how many, how many artists regardless of who they are have been able to do that, have had that kind of longevity she's Mm -hmm. she's she's great
0: all right well the uh, documentary is called homecoming it's on netflix before we go any further dana i'm sure we've got some business what do you got
2: Stephen, yes, first of all, we have a fun new feature on the site, Slate.com. Over the years on this show and many other Slate podcasts, we've been recommending articles, books, movies, TV shows, podcasts, products, all of the various things that we endorse or cocktail chatter about during the year have now been collected in a searchable database called the Slate Podcast Endorsomatic. You can find anything we have ever chattered about, recommended, or endorsed in one handy place, Slate.com slash endorsements. Secondly, a reminder about Slate Day, which is coming up this Saturday, June the 8th. Slate will be in the Chelsea Market Passage on the High Line and in the SVA Theater in Chelsea with a day of podcasts, energetic conversations and fun experiences. And come see some live shows from Decoder Ring, Studio 360, Trumpcast and us, the Slate Culture Gabfest. Fest. You can come for the whole day with an all access pass or you can just get tickets for whichever show you want to see. Either way, Slate.com slash live for tickets to slate day and finally in slate plus today we are talking about beyonce some more because we couldn't stop talking about her during our segment on homecoming the new movie on netflix so a little bit of our excess conversation has been broken out into a slate plus segment which you can hear at the end of this show to hear segments like that and to get ad-free podcasts you can sign up for our membership program slate plus for just 35 dollars for your first year go to slate.com slash culture plus and join slate plus today okay steve back to the show
0: Willa Paskin has called Jordan Peele America's most exciting film director. It is impossible. I think right now to argue with that assessment after get out and us to huge commercial and critical hits as a child. Peele was enchanted by Rod Serling's fifties, cold war era, sci-fi TV show, the twilight zone. Of course it was sumptuously neurotic and was topical and subversive and slightly hidden ways. Uh, He's now presiding, very Serling-like, over its reboot on CBS. You can watch it uh, streaming at All Access. Let's uh, listen to a clip. Samir Wasan is an artist of great principle. A man who refuses to compromise his beliefs for a cheap joke. But tonight, he felt the rush of the limelight for the first time. Now, he'll have to decide what really matters to him when the laughter stops and how much he's willing to give to the twilight zone all right dana um let me start with you these are such uh, wonderful little vignettes in a way they're so counter they're counter programming really to the direction television's gone in which is you know uh limited series anthologies that get stacked upon season after season or binge worthy you know um Novelistic shows that play out over several years, a la Game of Thrones. These are just standalone, standalone, standalone. And in that sense, uh, maybe cinematic in an interesting way for TV. What'd you make of this?
2: Yeah, I mean, you just put your finger on one of the things that I like about this new Twilight Zone, which is, as you know from talking about many a, a series with me, I love a Lozen show that you can just pop any individual one and it, it's it's just as satisfying as any other individual one. It does seem like there are a few little Easter egg themes that run from from Twilight Zone to Twilight Zone, at least of the four that have aired so far. But it doesn't seem like there's an X-Files-style deep narrative that's going to emerge. This really is going to be standalone stories the way the Rod Sterling show was. That also means, though, that the different stories can be of radically different, varying quality, which I think is really the case for the four that have aired so far. A couple have been good enough that I would send people to the show and say, you know, definitely see where this is going. Uh, Others have been too long. The fact that they're an hour long and not half an hour as the Serling episodes were, including commercials, seems a little padded to me. and uh, and only in one case of these these first four, has it really deserved and earned that length, I think. But overall, I think the show is a really fun experiment. I wish it was a little bit more Jordan Peale-y. You know, he hasn't directed any of the episodes so far. He has co-written a few of them. And uh, he appears as the Rod Serling, you know, the guy who sandwiches the show, as we heard in that clip. And he's wonderful in that role. But I'm not sure that I really see necessarily his directorial or even productorial touch in the show itself. It feels more like he's one of the showrunners who had a cool idea and not so much that he's making individual decisions. They are, however, hiring individual directors who are interesting people from cinema, from the cinematic world in many cases, who are, are doing cool things. I don't know. I mean... So far, I feel like I don't quite understand the desperate need to remake the Twilight Zone right now. I think it does a little bit result from the remake fever that culture is caught up in right now, and doesn't feel all that necessary. But it's pretty fun. Aisha, you're a big fan of the original series, right? You grew up watching it, so I want to hear about that, and also about how this stacks up for for
1: a real Sterling super fan. So I think actually Jordan Peele only covert one of the episodes, which I think is partially why the show doesn't really work for me. Um, He co-wrote the Nightmare at 30,000 Feet episode with Adam Scott. Yeah. So I I grew up watching Twilight Zone thanks to the sci-fi New Year's Eve marathons I have every year. Um, And uh, I just... I'm not really a huge sci-fi fantasy person but there was something about this show that just always struck me and got me I love Sterling's kind of very <laughs> just sort of hokey uh, semi-serious um, approach to his hosting and, and just kind of showing up in the middle of a scene at the beginning and ends of a sh- of an episode um, I loved the um, sometimes it, they scared me as a kid especially the the one with the dummy the guy who <laughs> the, the ventriloquist dummy who has like the, it starts to talk to you, and I remember. Did you see that, that af- dummy appeared in the first episode? Yes, yes. So that appeared. Also, the um, the monster from Nightmare at Twenty Thousand Feet, the original episode um, starring William Shatner, that also makes an appearance. And there's a few other Easter eggs throughout the show um, from the original version. But I think I, I think I'm more in line with most of the critics out there who have talked about how. This just doesn't seem, it seems to be missing, um, like you said, data, like an urgency, like a need for this, especially when you have something like Black Mirror. And Black Mirror, obviously, is not quite the same. That is more focused specifically on technology. But then when I look at these first four episodes, two of them are explicitly about technology. Um, The first one is um, the 30,000 Feet, one with Adam Scott, where he plays a journalist who... um, He's an investigative journalist who, like, is suffering from PTSD. And he, like, stumbles upon this MP3 player, which... as a
2: mysterious podcast. I love that there's <laughs> an evil podcast yeah. on TV now. Yeah.
1: I mean, first of all, it's like an MP3 player, which is already anachronistic. It's like, who has those anymore? Well, there's a
2: camcorder, too, in another episode, right? right? So and it... Peel seems to be interested
1: in old technology, which
2: makes sense yeah. for somebody
1: who's remaking a 50s show. Exactly. Um, But, yeah, it, it just... there. <sighs> I agree that it's way too long. Um, it should be noted that the original Twilight Zone, um, the, I think it was season four where they decided to go, um, do an hour, like all the episodes in season four were hour long episodes. And to me, that's like the, the worst season. And then they went back. <laughs> and then they went back afterwards for the final season, which was a, which was a good call. Um, I think that, the 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 problem is is that especially with something like the very first episode starring Kumail Nanjani um where he plays a comedian who um is visited by like a, a veteran comedian played by Tracy Morgan who was very creepy in a good way like i really liked Tracy Morgan in that role um who's like you in order to um get better he keeps bombing on stage so Tracy Morgan's character is like you in order to get better you have to like give like give up parts of yourself in your in your act and the one thing that was just weird to me that entire time was so he starts and spoil mild spoiler but like as soon as this conceit begins i can see where it's going and i know exactly where it's going um you know he he starts he stops telling political jokes which in this era political jokes are the things that make people like excited. I, I don't understand why that was a conceit, but he stops playing political jokes, um, and starts like talking about his family and his girlfriend and his nephew. And then they start disappearing when that happens. Um, and I guess it was just like by the end of the episode, the hour long episode. Nothing that happened surprised me.
2: Well, that that's why I'm saying the length is such a problem in, in many of these episodes is because the length makes you guess the twist. Right. I mean, if it all moved along swiftly enough, you might not have time to see something happening over and over again and put it together. And in almost every single one of these, I guessed the twist or sometimes it was more than one twist. And part of that was just because it was too luxuriantly long.
1: Yeah. And I will say, like, even the original Twilight Zone, there were lots of hits and misses. Like, they are not all perfect. (laughs) And that's what happens with a show, like an anthology show like this, especially an anthology show, like you mentioned, Steve, earlier, that is like every episode is different. Um, There are going to be some clunkers. And that definitely happens throughout all of the Twilight Zone in the original version. But this version has not made me excited to, like, keep watching.
0: You know, what does it say about me that I was completely captivated by the two episodes that I saw, one of which you guys have identified as one of the clunkers, the 30,000 feet one, which is, as you said, the remake of that iconic episode with um, William Shatner. But um, I loved the first episode, the stand-up comedian episode, um, you know, placing other people under erasure, this Faustian bargain. I mean, you know, first of all, Tracy Morgan is a Faust figure is just wonderful. I have never heard him speak in that voice. He's so plausibly sinister and brings with him all of the hideous compromises of of show business. Um you know, including this idea that you know, I actually f- found something maybe refreshingly original or bracing in that thesis that that you know, it's only when you connect up your performance as a stand-up comedian but maybe in in all kinds of show business, with something true about your and really vulnerable about your own interior and really personal about your own interior that you connect with the audience. And the irony of that is you actually need to both access that vulnerability, you probably need to betray other people in order to describe it honestly. You bring other people from your life into your novel writing, poem writing stand-up comedy and for that in a way you need a tremendous amount of coldness to make that sacrifice what graham green called the chip of ice and i just thought this was a great allegorizing really of that dynamic so that each time he brings something deeply personal from his life up on stage with him it achieves full metaphysical erasure out in the world and these are meant to be absurd they're meant to be over the top they're meant to have a both a kind of nauseatingly ambiguous aspect to them um, at the same time they're meant to be a little bit puppet showy in their obviousness and I thought that line was walked really nicely and 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 like we inherit I, I mean I think arguably Serling at the time felt what he was doing had a camp element to it I guess that's arguable but there's inarguably we inherit it as a form of camp and I think that Pe- Peel is embracing it uh I love his deadpan you know, intros and outros and I love just the OTT nature of the content in between. I mean, the 30,000 feet one, first of all, I love Adam Scott. Almost always am grateful to see him on a screen playing someone, the PTSD journalist, just as a, as someone who suffers from immense fear of flying, I'm always in danger of having exactly the kind of mental <laughs> break that he's having in Sand. the episode. I mean, I just was like, I don't know. I I, I In a weird way, I like the demands that this show doesn't place on me relative for for example to my current pathetic attempts to catch up with game of thrones from a standing start in order to do its final episode on our show and it's like just the sheer mental commitment of internalizing an entire world and and all of its like genealogies and relationships and backstories and it's like fuck it I love that I start tabula rasa and I love that I'm when I'm done I'm done with each one of these episodes I kind of love it I'm sorry
2: you know Steve if you are intrigued by the first two episodes you definitely have to go to I believe it's the third episode replay which is the one that's been the most talked about for sure um, in, in critical response to the show but I think the best episode so far too although it has its it has its moments that are a little bit uh, wonky but it's it's pretty great um, it's called replay it stars Sana Lathan and I won't give too much away about it, but it is about the relationship between the police and young black men and does some really
1: interesting and scary things with that premise.
0: Oh, I'm so in.
1: Yeah, I thought that was the best episode as well. At the same time, I felt like there's been so many shows and movies now that are trying to wrestle with, you know, black what being black means and how that is a danger um, to black people to be black. Um, and I, that was another one where I was like, I know exactly where this is going. And that didn't, it it less so than, you know, the other episode, it didn't lessen the impact for me. It still felt like, I think Sinai Lathan is like a treasure and very underrated and I want her to get more roles like this. Um, but I don't know. I just, I also felt like, Okay. I've seen this. I know what it is. I, I like the kind of links to having it being a, I like the links of it having it be like a camcorder, which makes you think of Rodney King and all these other things. But I don't know. I was still kind of, okay. On to the next one. Yeah. When I say there's wonky
2: <laughs> moments, I mean there's places that you know where it's going. It gets there and then it stays there a little bit too long and points out that it is there. But these still seem to me like they could be rough spots in what could be. This show could be because it does require a different cast, a different director, different everything every time. It is sort of a mini movie. This is a show that could reinvent itself many times. It's not as mm-hmm. if it's set a yep. path for itself that it now has to follow.
0: Yeah, it could, uh, it could
2: shorten to half an hour. It could do the reverse of the original could, Twilight Zone. It could
0: do a reverse Serling. I uh, I love the idea of it a half hour. I love the idea of the mini movie, and um, definitely gonna. I'm gonna kind of stick with it. It's the Twilight Zone. It's presented by Jordan Peele, and it's you can stream it at CBS All Access. All right, moving on. For the past three years or so, since ever since Donald Trump and the toxic soup that surrounds his every word, virtually every word and gesture, hijacked our national dialogue. It's been commonplace to point out it's like we're living in some sort of simulation. Real life no longer feels like real life. Are we in a novel? Um, Not only satire, but all fiction making goes beggared next to the absurd reality that's brought uh, fresh to us uh, day after every day. It's been hard for any book or really any kind of piece of fiction making or, or or culture to emerge as the definitive text about the Trump years because they themselves are so weirdly, garishly um, vivid in themselves. They don't need to be fictionalized in any way. But now we might actually have the definitive text. One critic has called the report the best nonfiction book so far on the Trump administration. We are, of course, talking about the Mueller report, which is now not only available in various uh, text forums on various websites. It's now an audiobook. We are now joined by Karen Schwartz, who is uh, a contributing editor at Marie Claire Karen, welcome to the show.
3: Thanks so much for having me.
0: Uh, you are considered a serious Twitter friend of the program, a T-fire. <laughs> I um, appreciate and,
1: that.
0: And it's great to have you on. And the reason is you contributed to the creation of this uh, audiobook. So ta- 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 tell us what went into turning what in some you know people's estimation, yeah, it's sort of a spy thriller. It's also a giant, boring tangle of legalese. Uh, what, what, what inspired you to make an audiobook out of it?
3: Well, I really, first off, I should 100% credit the very great team at Audible who wanted to do this. And, um, you know, earlier in the year when it sort of there were rumblings that Mueller Report was going to happen, was it they assembled a team, which I'm very proud to have been on, to sort of figure out how best to do this. And what they came up with, which I love what we came up with, which I love, is to try to do it as straight down the middle as possible, which is really just to read the source document. And here we have it.
0: The Russian government interfered in the 2016 presidential election in sweeping and systematic fashion. Evidence of Russian government operations began to surface in mid-2016. In June... The Democratic National Committee and its cyber response team publicly announced that Russian hackers had compromised its computer network.
2: You got this together really fast, Karen. It seems like your the the space between the, having the idea that we needed an audiobook of the Mueller report and one existing was something like twenty-four to forty-eight hours. Can you talk about how you put it together with Virginia Heffernan, who I gather was sort of your co-producer?
3: Yes, the glorious Virginia Heffernan. Um. Well, so. We didn't. The Audible team did, and behind the scenes, they thought of. They had a question: How were they going to handle, if at all, the Mueller report? And I think you know there have been a couple other publishers who are producing. I think the Washington Post is doing something that then their then their reporters are also doing sort of some kind of an analysis on, and there's some other uh, publication where. Alan Dershowitz wrote a a introduction to it or something. And and I think what happened is they saw coming down the pike that those things were going to be published and they sort of said, well, maybe we should do something. And the way that it evolved was to try to do something that would be for the public record, really, as as an historic document, um, almost more than anything else. And I can say that, like, you know, as... Steve said, I am a contributing editor Marie Claire. This isn't, I'm not like a legal person. This isn't completely my background. But one thing that through the this whole crazy adventure, wild, terrifying roller coaster ride of a presidency we've all been on that has happened to me personally is I have like kind of fallen in love very dorkily with reading the source documents to this investigation, just reading the other indictments. Reading the transcripts from the various trials, and they're really good. And I mean, Bob Mueller is a really good writer and his team collaborating, obviously. But so I felt very passionately I would I call myself a zealot about the source documents. So I'm really, really, really thrilled that the way that Audible decided to go about doing this was to keep it very closely hued to the Mueller team's work. And also to keep it free, right? This is actually oh, free God. on
2: Audible
0: for anybody who wants to go and download it.
3: Free on Audible for anyone who wants to download it. Yeah, which is great, I think.
0: All right. As someone, Karen, I have to ask just the right up top, even though this is not a really a political segment uh, okay. or any kind of a traditional segment on the you know nuts and bolts of this report, as someone who followed this incredibly closely, obsessively? Um, what was the thing that jumped out at you from the report that you didn't already know?
3: Well, you know what, you know what jumped out at me. It's it partially something that I did know ish from reading the other documents, but the thing that dr- jumps out at me, and and in your intro, you even sort of alluded to this as it, as it is as literature, and I think that. It, the most applicable form of literature probably is one of these dense Russian novels. Right. <laughs> I mean, ironically enough, but what come came out to me, and this is like, there's sort of a joke going on now between, uh, you know, Mueller obsessive Mueller report obsessive are you a volume one person or a volume two person, you know? And I am sort of a, a third category, which is volume two executive summary person. And what, because, What I loved actually in the report was hearing the, reading the analysis of how they came to their declination decisions and what was up with that. And the reason I loved it is that I loved this narrator of this book, you know, if we're thinking of it that way. And... And I, I love the, the the concept of the Mueller team as a narrator, almost like, you know, the narrator of the Great Gatsby telling the story of the Gatsby and the contrast between the people writing the report versus the people they're describing within the report. I find that very fascinating, personally.
1: What struck me is that it's it's read very straightforward and, and kind of mimics the sort of dense, just very... Uh, by the books, for lack of a better phrase, um, way the actual report is kind of laid out. And there are several narrators, um, people who are narrating it throughout the entire Audible file. Did you, like, are you aware of, like, what they were told, like, how they were told to read it? Like, were they given notes as to, like, don't give too many flourishes or don't, you know, signpost things? Like, what was the um, sort of uh, the direction that was given to the people who are narrating the Audible?
3: Broadly speaking, the the um, tone they're going for in general of it is sort of just the facts, ma'am, like as as closely as we can hew to the actual text. And I think part I know part of the decision on this is that there's so much noise surrounding it. So, you know, in terms of the punditry, the analysis, the takes or whatever, that it, it What they really wanted to do was produce, again, like an historic, for the record, we the people, very patriotic, taxpayers paid for this. This is our country. This is our democracy. And in fact, Mueller team makes this point, you know, more broadly, like that it's our civic responsibility almost to hold the checks and balances up. So I think the Audible team and the thought is just as straight ahead, closely hewed to the report and just bare bones as possible was what they were going for. So I think that's why you get the tone you do when you hear it.
2: I especially love the first reader. I was a little bit sad when it switched readers. They're all excellent, but I had gotten so into the first guy's voice and his just perfectly dry presentation (laughs) of the facts that it was a little bit of a jolt when a different voice came in.
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. And that is true. Actually, Dean, I feel like I totally I didn't fully address your question, which is like with the quick turnaround time, there was sort of a go team, like ready to go. I assume it had
2: to be like a pit crew in a race or something, right? I mean, they had to keep on recording.
3: Yeah. To keep going, and so that's why you do have so many voices. And the, it, I mean, we were really on standby like since prior to the bar letter dropping, when the team was ready to go as soon as we had something and get into the studio.
0: Um, Karen, I have a more macro question for you, which is that on the one hand, you have this you know, vividly salacious president and presidency. With this, um, you know, totally unbounded toddler in chief who just kind of comes out and says it or tweets it, um, and uh, can't really like even if they're he can't really keep a secret exactly. He doesn't really hide his c- corrupt nature um, at all. On the other hand, you have this, you know, almost anachronistic figure of American probity and, and Bob Mueller, who everyone put their bipartisan faith in. Um, and to the best of his abilities, he seems to have fulfilled his mission, which is in his nonpartisan, non-ideological way as possible, attempted to present Joe Friday like the facts simply as they presented themselves uh, to him and his investigators. Um, so it, how does how how do you throw all of this together and come up with something that's thrilling or novelistic when in one sense we knew so much of this already? So it's anticlimactic. And secondly, you know, Mueller has gone to great lengths to shroud it all in a kind of anonymous legal and make it in some ways as non novelistic as possible. Where where does this all go into the blender and come out as as a thrilling work of nonfiction?
3: Well, I think I actually think I mean, I think there's been commentary too. especially volume two is like sort of the best sort of insider takedown of the White House, you know, and and it's better than the woodwork book type of thing, that that kind of stuff. I think the facts I mean, I, I think what Mueller has done here is that let the bananas quotes the bananas actions and whatever speak for themselves he really is and you know his team they really are, are are very novelistic in their details they they've done a great job of sort of sticking in quotes um and letting these characters in their outlandishness speak for themselves. And actually the the point that you're making is, is what I kind of enjoy as a reader of this. And, and that is the like contrast between the narrator and Mm -hmm. the events, Mm -hmm. Uh, not just in tone, but also I think what emerges, especially when you, you know, it, it, those parts that I personally love where they explain their thought process is there's such a contrast between the principles of, The people writing this report versus the actions of basically everyone they're quoting and describing, that that's just a stark relief. And it's an interesting literary concept that I'm sure they weren't conscious of, but I think comes through very interestingly. And also in the audio where it's so straight ahead, but also outlandish.
2: Right. I mean that's that's where the narrator voice that you're talking about really emerges is, is that there is this very dry Legalistic narrator who is recounting these outlandish events without seeming to deliver judgment, but it's not it's impossible as a reader or listener in the case of the audiobook not to yourself fill in all the emotion and the kind of you know moral space that's being being left open. One example of that, I think, where the understatement of the narrator is almost maddening is in the description of the the access Hollywood tapes dropping when oh, I believe yeah, I love that yeah. I believe the phrasing is something like. On whatever date it was, let's say, whatever, July 16th, 2016... Uh candidate Trump uttered graphic statements about women or something. The word graphic is the only word that's used. And there was a part of me. I started railing at the audiobook when I heard that line because the problem with the Access Hollywood tape was not that the remarks were graphic. Right. It was that they were about assault. It was it had much more to do with the criminality of the act being described. And that was a moment when it was like the probity of this narrator is driving me insane. It is not actually an accurate representation of how horrific those remarks were.
3: But see, I love that tension personally, like as a, if we're looking at this a little, I love that tension where it's like dry as a bone about insanity and just puts the insanity in that much more of a starker relief, you know?
2: Right, of course. I mean, the very last thing I'll say is that this whole weekend since the report released, well, it was also a holiday weekend. It was Easter and Passover and everyone was on vacation and people were not reading this report. I just want to thank you and the narrators and all of the reporters, like all of the people who are out there spending their holiday weekend sifting through this report and trying to turn it into something that people can understand and digest. I mean, I think that even you, Karen, right, the person who's been working on this since Thursday when the report dropped, have not made your way through the entire
3: 448 page thing yet, right? No. I have not, and I think people who are really like you know Muller Talmudists almost are. are we're going to be reading this, but this is a warm peace. Like is this, we're going to be reading this thing for years and eons. There's it's so dense, you know. But that being said, I really, really would love to encourage people to read it for themselves, especially. And I think the easiest things to sort of dive into or the executive summaries probably. Um, But I do, I think it's a fun thing to listen to on audio. I don't know that I could have predicted how much fun it would be to just to hear it rather than to read it. But I think it's kind of great.
0: All right. Excellent. Karen, it is such a pleasure to finally sort of meet you. Um, you Yeah. And a great pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much for coming on.
3: Thanks so much for having me.
0: All right, now's the moment in our podcast and we endorse Dana
2: You're gargling my name. I've become a mouthwash.
0: That's the sound my dog makes when we're playing tug of war with a sock.
2: <laughs> I'm honored. You
0: sh- you very you should be very honored. Uh Dana, what do you have?
2: I have two endorsements this week. I'll make them each short, but they are uh, one is very on-brand and one is very off-brand. I think that you will be amused by the off-brand one, Steve. Um, the on-brand one is related to my endorsement from last week when we were talking about Notre Dame, and I ended up by uh, endorsing some music from the, the some medieval polyphony from the School of Notre Dame. And as our listeners will do, because they're all incredibly brilliant and interested in interesting things and know more about those things than we do often, uh, someone contacted me on Twitter to say, I'm surprised that you did not talk about Guillaume de Machaut's Messe de Notre Dame um, the Notre Dame Mass that was written, I guess, about a century after the music I endorsed was influenced by it and was kind of the the flower of that Notre Dame school of music that I was talking about. And, uh, and I completely freaked because Guillaume de Machaut is this huge figure in medieval history that I don't really think of as a composer at all. He's a poet and a kind of troubadour and one of the first great lyric poets and was just somebody I had studied in a completely different context. So realizing that he was this polymath, which I guess I kind of knew but didn't know, uh, was a great discovery. And so my second follow-up to the um, the sort of early School of Notre Dame music that I endorsed last week is, it's called the Messe de Notre-Dame, the Mass of Notre-Dame. It's by Guillaume de Machaud. It was actually written for a different cathedral, also called Notre-Dame in the town of Reims. But uh, it's part of that same kind of flowering of polyphony in the 11th and 12th century that I was talking about last week, although it's a bit later. So uh, the version of it that's on Spotify, which is wonderful, is by a group called the Oxford Camerata. So again, The Messe de Notre Dame by Guillaume de Machaut, sung by the Oxford Camerata. We'll provide a link to that on the show page. And my second endorsement, the off-brand one, has to do with the San Antonio Spurs, and their coach, Greg Popovich. <laughs>
0: <laughs> 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 okay. Oh, CPR. CPR.
2: <laughs> Defibrillator battles. Uh, <laughs> don't worry, I have not become a person who actually watches basketball or even understands the rules of basketball. But as a native of San Antonio, of course I'm a fan of Greg Popovich, the great coach of the San Antonio Spurs, and who's sort of known as, you know, one of the great NBA coaches and sort of one of the great moral leaders in the NBA, who's just always like on the right side of the right issues. And and is completely unafraid to speak into a hot mic about whatever is on his mind. And is just known essentially for his kind of leadership and uh, devotion to the Spurs franchise. So there's this long article that uh, a friend of mine sent me, thank you, Michael, uh, knowing that I was a Greg Popovich fan, about Greg Popovich's relationship to food and wine and the dinners that he takes the Spurs out to after big games, or I think after almost all games. So there's this tradition, I guess, in the, uh, in the Spurs franchise that... After a big game or after any game, they will all get together for a dinner at a really nice restaurant because Pop, as he's known, Greg Popovich, is a, a food and wine person. He he loves food and he loves wine and he loves throwing these big dinners where everybody eats and drinks for hours and talks. And he sort of goes around the table and speaks to them about their lives, about the game. Kind of, It's a bonding experience for, for the players. And there's a really long reported piece on ESPN.com about this tradition of the, the Popovich dinners um, for the Spurs. It's by Baxter Holmes. It's really quite long and Reported over it seems like almost a period of, of years because he revisits some stories years after they happened in this in this um, reported piece. It's really just a beautiful story about leadership and uh, and teamwork and love in the workplace, loving your, your co-workers and how that makes you work better together. And so whether or not you're a basketball fan or a Spurs person, I really, really endorse the um, the piece in ESPN, Michelin restaurants and fabulous wines inside the secret team dinners that have built the Spurs dynasty. It's on ESPN.com and it's by Baxter Holmes.
0: It's a wonderful piece of journalism and Popovich's, I think, as advertised. I oh, mean, you know really, the piece? Yeah, I, I, it was total. I mean, I don't read a ton of sports journalism anymore. I just this is so boring and routine, and this is anything but. It's a, it's a wonderful piece of writing, and I didn't know these stories at all. I certainly knew. I mean, I mean, he's just that he is an extraordinary figure. He really is. He's been on the right side, as you say, Dana, of absolutely everything, um, uh, and he's. He's going down as the greatest coach in NBA history, certainly since Red Auerbach or maybe of all time. I mean, but I didn't know these stories. They're wonderful. And exactly right that that that, that positive externality that he confers on not just players who he's trying to get to give their all for what could be read as selfish reasons, but everybody right these sommeliers these chefs these the wine culture of 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 the um of the country really you know it, you know claims to have evolved in part because of his appreciation it's an amazing piece of writing it's it's great yeah aisha what do you have
1: uh so as as <laughs> Uh, one of the TV editors at The Times. I watch mostly TV now. That's like what I consume. And so I'm going to recommend a TV show that I think is really great. And that would be Rami. It's a new Hulu series. Um, You can stream it now. that was created by and stars Rami Youssef, who's a comedian slash actor. Um, and it's kind of like in the vein of a, uh, a master of none or crashing, or even a Louie, um, in which Rami plays a version of himself. Um, but this one is very different in that it deals directly with um, Rami. He's a Muslim American first generation, uh, Muslim American, and his quest to like figure out how to be a, you know, quote unquote, good Muslim. And it's really, really just, it's a funny show. It's fascinating. Um, he, it's about him and also his family, his his sister and his mom and dad who live in Jersey, um, and then also his friends. And there are certain episodes, each episode is kind of dedicated to, you know, typical millennial stuff, like trying to date people, um, like, trying to find a new job or figure out what you're passionate about all the stuff that we've seen many sitcoms deal with in the last like five to ten years when it comes to like 20 and 30 somethings but it's all kind of through the lens of spirituality and also of a muslim american perspective which is something like we never see um and so i think it's a, I think it's important uh, because it's a good sort of counter to so many depictions we always see of Muslims and Muslim Americans in pop culture and in the news of being dangerous, uh, of being super, uh, super religious and, and uh, regressive. And there's bits of that. There are definitely characters um who orbit his world that are like that. But because there are so many Muslim American characters, we get so many different facets of this life. Um, And we see different people practicing their religion in different ways. And I just think it's really funny. It's smart. And I highly recommend everyone check it out. And they're short. They're like, you know, 25, 30 minute episodes. Where do you watch it again? It's on Hulu. Okay. Yeah.
0: Dana, have you ever read Mont Saint Michel and Chart by um, Henry Adams?
1: I did way back in
2: the day. I mean, it was when I was majoring in medieval studies in college, so I hardly remember a thing about it. Tell me about it.
0: Uh, well, I, I have to preface this by saying should Henry Adams be canceled? Answer probably yes. It, it, he was a whopping anti Semite of the extreme variety. Now, Henry Adams was the whatever, the great grandson, great great grandson of the, of the Adams. Uh, political dynasty and inherited that in the most troubled neurotically cri- crippling way possible you know not able to live up to the greatness of his lineage he instead became this observer of American society and he famously wrote an autobiography called the education of Henry Adams in which he depicts himself in the third person and in a way he's he's he is this embodiment of I think what has to be called a kind of semi-white, I mean, he's definitely like a very white inflected, like Anglo-Saxon Protestant inflected figure in American thinking. Nonetheless, he's hugely influential, wrote very interesting histories of the United States, and wrote this kind of quirky, uh, quirky is too condescending. I mean, he wrote this sort of remarkable spiritual autobiography called Mont Saint-Michel and Chart, which I do not recall having an, a, an explicitly anti-Semitic sentence in it, and if it does, uh, pl- someone please point it out to me. I'm not trying to put Henry Adams back on the map uh, here in any way. He's an equivocal figure. To the extent that we are capable of consuming people at 100 years remove who are equivocal figures, I think Henry Adams is worth encountering in part because what he gets at is why cathedrals are such totally encompassing exhibits of the human imagination you know, potentially in some respects at its kind of h- highest expression in one very particular sense, right, as a, as a kind of total worldview. And so the experience that he has of the cathedrals in part is as a person who inherits a specific tradition of Christianity, um, but in another sense as someone visiting like a, you know, a ruin in Mexico where all of the cumulative ghosts that, you know, once lived there and once believed in the totality of a cosmological worldview um, have also totally disappeared. And he just is trying to get at what it is about um, the medieval worldview that was able to incorporate absolutely every detail of life into a belief system that then got embodied like physically embodied by the cathedral and in the lo- you know the aftermath of the loss of Notre Dame I thought ah I sort of wish that I had had mentioned that so I'm going to endorse it but with an asterisk that I take really seriously I mean I I Anyway, but um, and then additionally, I just like to say, you know, like I'm throwing out these Hudson Valley recommendations and the one place I and if people want them, they should definitely email and I'll send them. They do get revised and updated and added to if you haven't gotten it in a while, go ahead and email back in. It's just a cut and paste for me. Um, but one thing I would say is that Little Debs um, in uh, Hudson, which is by far and away my favorite place to go eat in Hudson, New York, um, I, I they closed it for a while um, heartbreakingly um, and then joyously, they've reopened it, slightly renovated and expanded. It's like a little easier space to sit in now. And they've done a beautiful job. And and the thing, they, they're Bard graduates. They're like genderqueer Bard graduates who self-consciously went about creating a restaurant as a work of art. And that sounds like such a turnoff, but it shouldn't be at all. They've done it. And it like wins James Beard awards. You can't believe the quality of the meal you're getting um and a relative to the just i don't know i hate to use such a stupid outmoded word but it's like it's just so fucking cool in there i mean it just it they've done something really special and if you are going to hudson and you want just one recommendation that's it for me so anyway aisha thank you so much for coming back on the show this was a really really good episode really fun episode
1: thank you it was fun
0: uh dana as always thank you so much
1: yes talk to you next week
0: You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page. That's slate.com slash culturefest. As always, you can email us and we love it at CultureFest at Slate.com. We do have a Twitter feed. Drop in, visit us there. It's at Slate Cult Fest. And a reminder that you can find a searchable database of all our endorsements. That's at Slate.com slash endorsements. The endorsematic, go check it out. You can you know fiddle around in it and find uh, all the kind all the stuff that we've talked about over the years. Our producer is Benjamin Frisch. And our production assistant is Alex Barish. For Dana Stevens and Aisha Harris, thank you so much for joining us, and we will see you soon.
2: Here's a sneak peek at this week's Slate Plus segment. If you want to hear the whole thing, plus ad-free podcasts, Join us at Slate.com slash Culture Plus.
1: Is the beehive going to come after me for even uttering such words? I mean, this is where Beyoncé as a figure gets complicated. I think there's so many things about her that are complicated in ways that a lot of the beehive doesn't want to address or admit